Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing the Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Ray Hearn. And this is our 17th episode in the Tartan Talk series. So we're happy to make it up to that total. And I'm going to warn you before we get started, this is also going to be the longest Tartan Talks you've listened to. Uh, Ray and I had a wonderful conversation when we discussed everything from his starting as an assistant superintendent to begin his golf industry career to going into some specific examples of work he's done in various regions. So we hope you enjoy the podcast. We hope you stick around to the end of it because Ray presents a lot of good information. And before we get going, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a great supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a numerous industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're happy to have them on board. And we were happy that Ray was able to spend so much time with us. Well, Ray, thank you very much for joining us. We're excited to have you on the podcast. The first thing I got to ask you is you started as an assistant superintendent at the Country Club of Detroit. How did that experience help you? Yeah, that guy, thank you. Thank you for uh, letting me on the show. In uh, 1974, a couple of us got the notion, hey, we should start caddying. So we caddied at uh, a place called the Country Club of Detroit. It was an old Colton Allison design. And then, bam, you know, I'm in seventh grade, fell in love with the game of golf. And then from there, uh, this, is, this is neat. And um, some of the ASCC members like, Ray, you got to document this a little better and tell a, a story about this. But I grew up in, um, in Detroit. And, you know, going around nationally to all our different brothers, they said, oh, Ray, that had to be horrible, you know, growing up in Detroit. And I was like, no, Detroit was actually a, a beautiful city. And then, obviously, the riots, you know, created some unrest and it turned. But back in the day when I was, you know, on, in the uh, northeast side, it was great. But anyway, I ended up cutting out some uh, holes on some neighbors' lawns with their permission, of course, and then uh, concocting these flags. So we had a little three-hole course we used to play as a neighborhood. So I fell in love with that. But then that ultimately led to um, uh, an interest in the turf end of this. So uh, I got a full scholarship, the Evans Scholarship. Uh, if you watch the, uh, the movie Caddyshack, it's a little bit of a satire on that. But it's, uh, it was a scholarship uh, for individuals that were in the upper 10 percent of their class had five strong references you had to caddy for at least five years and then um, uh, you had to have some economic need to we were basically a middle-class family growing up but so then I, I told my parents I got this scholarship and it was either to the University of Michigan or Michigan State and my family bled blue I mean they were Wolverines um, um, my old, oldest brother almost got a football scholarship and ended up going to another school. Uh, Bo Schembechler met with them at her house. So, I mean, we were hook, lock, and sinker. But I, I said to them, I said, you know, I, I, I have this desire to go into something golf-related. And how I got this start was uh, uh, my golf coach put me in contact with Dr. Kenyon Payne at Michigan State who was best friends with Robert Trent Jones Sr. And if you do a little his, historical research, there was a connection there to uh, Sr.'s company. A lot of the interns came from Michigan State University. Even 
know he was a graduate of Cornell, or, or he had developed a, a program at Cornell. So Dr. Payne put me in touch with them, and then I said, you know, I, I watched the Masters with my father. I'd love to be able to design courses someday. And this is, this is really uh, at my freshman year uh, in uh, Bishop Gallagher High School in the uh, Harper Woods, uh, in one of the northern suburbs of Detroit. So Dr. Payne put me in touch with uh, Mr. Jones, and I'm not exaggerating. And I've told Reese this before. I put in 30 calls to their office, and then finally his secretary was so embarrassed. That, uh, like three months later, she goes, you know, it was always difficult. I'm sorry, Ray, you know, he's, he's busy, he's out of the office. And then she said, she caught herself, said, I can't do this anymore. So she put me on the phone with him. Oh, my goodness, I almost died, almost heart attack. I'm just... When I heard his voice, and he said, "What do you want?" You know, what do you, you know? I've heard you called many times. I said, "Well, I'm friends with Doctor. Oh, you're friends with Doctor Payne." I'm thinking I'd love to have a career, and you got to start as uh, assistant superintendent. So, in a long-winded <laughs> answer to your question, he was the one that, and, and he gave me all the reasons why. He said, "I did it in Cornell, and I, I crafted my own program, and I." You know, he was a confident guy. He was a very confident man, and, and Bobby Jr. and Reese would, would uh, admit to that, very confident about his abilities. And he would say, Ray, I could outcompete my competition because I knew that end of it. And obviously he got involved at some courses along with his education. But he said, you got to go in, you got to get dirt under your fingernails. And he said, you got to learn that every little squiggle that you'll, if you're lucky enough to ever become a golf course designer in the future, and he told me the, the road is very difficult, but he said you'll have an advantage because you'll, you'll know that every squiggle that you draw will have a ramification in terms of the construction cost and the maintenance cost. So here I am. I'm just writing all this down. So he goes, listen, i got to go. i got to catch a flight. But he said, I want you to get back to Dr. Payne. I'd like you know that would be your first degree, but then after that, you have to um, you have to work at a at a club after your your four year degree, and then that's when I came as an assistant to the Country Club of Detroit. I was like, and I applied at Medina. I was almost had a job at Medina, and then he said after that you got to go back to school, and he said you're going it's going to take you longer. I did this in about five years at Cornell, but he said it would probably take you seven. He said, you got to get another degree, another bachelor's in landscape architecture, and if they don't have a golf course architecture emphasis, you got to help them create it. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to do this? this is, and I'm writing all this down. So then um, after my stint, as uh, I worked under Kerry uh, Mitchelson, and Bill Milney, uh, a Scottish um, superintendent from origin, and had a wonderful experience there for two years. Then I went back. I followed this to a T. And in my, my second day in landscape architecture, one of the professors said, Ray, we've got an architect uh, by the name of Jerry Matthews, who is a member of the society, the ASGCA, and he's right here in Lansing. Have you ever heard of him? And I said, oh, yes, I've heard of Mr. Matthews. And he said he needs some help in his office. So I went in for an interview, 
and you know, just scared out of my wits. And Jerry said, "You're hired." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> and he said, "Furthermore, I'm going to give you a key to my office. Keep your own hours. You want to come in at night." So I worked through my second degree with him. After, and this is all following Jones Seniors, his advice. And so then I ended up getting promoted to senior designer after a while and spent 10 years with Jerry and started my own company. But the last thing that senior told me to do, he said, Ray, you've got to spend a lot of time overseas. And Pete Dye, who was one of my sponsors getting in the ASGCA, told me that too, that you just got to get over, you got to see the Holy Land. And so I was lucky enough at the end of my second degree, Michigan State asked me to teach a golf course design class. Uh, it was it was held every fall, and it rotated uh, Scotland, Ireland, and England. And and I did I think I did that for nine yeah it was about nine years, and then I went after that and took clients there. So I mean that was to answer your question about you know being a superintendent was that it was important that was all from senior, so he is credited with my roadmap which I was so anal to follow to a T, as my wife always jokes, and then Dr. Kenyon Payne. So that, that basically started me in my path to be, becoming a golf course architect. Man, that's a long answer. To well, a that's question. a wild story. I don't even know where to go next. But uh, seriously, if a high school student called you today and asked, the same questions you asked Robert Trent Jones Sr., what would you tell them about the path that they would need to take here in 2017? Yeah, and, and that's a, an excellent question because we talk about that as a society, and I always take the time to follow through with them because of what Sr. did for me. But the first thing I, you know, I tell them is what Sr. told me because it, was, it, was you know, it wasn't a booming golf economy when I first started with Cherry. We had to go through some of the oil embargo and that. So I, I'm, the first thing I said is if, if you're passionate and this is your goal and you follow these steps that I'll give you, and basically the similar steps that Senior had given me, you'll, you'll succeed. But it, it could be a very difficult road because as anything in society, whether you're in architecture, interior design, or golf architecture, we're in a supply and demand. We're, we're influenced by that. And as you know, right now, you know, there's a lot of golf courses out there, and then there's some that are actually struggling, struggling a little. And there's a lot of golf course architects out there, especially right now where some of the bigger offices laid off, um, you know, during the Great Recession. And those individuals, some have dropped out of the industry, but some are hanging their own shingle. So I tell them, you know, try to get the, the two disciplines. Try to get the design discipline, which I feel landscape architecture or civil engineering is the foundation. Try to get an emphasis area in the school you go to in golf course architecture. Try to gain some experience in the golf maintenance industry. And then come back. I kind of reversed it and then, and then go into, um, you know, a two- or four-year turf program. But then I said, you know, be, be persistent. It's, it's very difficult getting in as an intern in golf course design offices now. And I, I've taken interns uh, over the years and would have them, you know, in during the summer. But, uh, I, I, you know, 
know, I, I don't, I don't discourage them, but I give them a dose of reality, and I said, be passionate about it, and be persistent, and you'll get in, like anything. But it's it's a tough road nowadays, as you know. Do you feel yourself thinking like a former assistant superintendent when you're doing a project? Is that one of the first questions that goes through your mind? Is how what I'm designing is going to be maintained? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have a deep respect for all individuals in the, in the golf industry, whether they're, they're managers, general managers, or directors of golf. But obviously, from the story I just shared with you, I have a special place in my heart for superintendents. So definitely, to answer your question, definitely. When I go into a project, I'm looking at it with a bunch of different set of eyes. And I'm always cognizant of that. And, you know, I, I always have strong interaction with the, uh, the superintendent. And really, to be honest, even during the recession, we weren't overly busy. But I would say we were busy. We, weren't, we were fortunate enough not to be slow like some offices. In the last three years, we've been really, really busy. But, you know, I, I, I owe our success to the you know, the boards, the owners, and, and the superintendents I've worked with. When, you, when an architect can connect with a superintendent, you're going to get a synergistic impact of how the project is going to turn out. And, you know, they, um, most of them really are cognizant that, wow, you know, Ray, you, you know enough that you can relate because of your background and you're still passionate about that. But I'm also smart enough to know that they keep up with this on a, on a daily basis where, you know, I'm keeping up with trends in golf design and trends in that. So, I, you know, I wouldn't class my, classify myself as an expert like they are, but I, I really have fun interacting with them. And word of mouth among superintendents who are about one-third of my reference list has really helped my career. So, again, I, you know, I just thank Senior for, for taking the time and, and, and rolling out the importance of including that in, your, as your, in part of your development as a golf course architect. So, yeah, that, that's really important. And I look, at that, I look at that critically. Now, here's a question I would ask you that would come out of that question. Um, uh, the key words now, and, and rightfully so, our sustainability. You want environmental and economic sustainability in golf courses. And when an architect works effectively with a superintendent, you can achieve that. But but here's a dangerous trend that I want to point out, and not, not a lot of architects like to talk about this because it's, it's controversial, but I, I believe in sustainability it has to it makes us all better it makes the game grow and there's other aspects about that i'll talk about but when when it's when it's it can be done in in overkill too that um some courses designs it can be so over calculated that actually the design and i think tom doak even coined this phrase it can be dumbed down and, and, and that's not good, too. You can, when you're going for sustainability, it's a, it's, it's a lofty goal, and it should be a goal, but you can also take that too far where you're, 
eliminating so many bunkers, narrowing the fairway so much, putting in so much fescue, eliminating maybe a tee in a, in a, a critical 5T system going to four. Sometimes you do that, you're, you're, you're taking strategy, shot value, and playability, the big three, and you're lowering them. So um, those are all great conversations that I can have with superintendents early on uh, that that can be conveyed by them back to their board of directors and or their owner in the case of uh, public courses. So, um, yeah, that's, it, it's an important part of who I am, and it's an important uh, part of our success. As a We're going to discuss some of your projects individually here in a few minutes, but one thing I I'm curious about is you've had a chance recently to work on some courses that opened in the 1990s. How have expectations, tastes, and realities changed in the last 20 to 25 years? Technology can be a wonderful thing, and it it obviously, you know, there's a great debate on this of how technology and golf ball and golf club technology is, is good or we bad. We can record a separate episode on that at some point if you want to. Yeah, that, that's a separate, that's a whole different thing. So I'm, <laughs> I'm deep. But then uh, technology in mowers, in irrigation systems, in grass types that are used improved uh, cultivars and varieties, the golf industry has done such a good job in getting that word out that um, some of uh, John Smith and Jane Smith, who are Greens Committee uh, chairpersons at their club, you know, get wind of that and understand it to a degree. And so I feel from the 90s as we go forward, there's more of an emphasis on using these advances in technology to help create and foster economic and environmental sustainability. So there's an instance where, you know, technology is, is, is really a good thing. And I think that's the biggest change that I'm seeing as, as we're going to renovate um, courses that were done in the 90s. We're bringing that technology into it and then making them more sustainable. But here's an oldie but goodie that, that hasn't changed, and it, and it should never change, is the, the emphasis, the main emphasis should always be, number one, on strategy, shot value, and playability, regardless of the ability of the golfers at that course. Because you always, as a designer, you always have to have your head on. You've got to think of you know, the better ball strike, strikers, the golf professionals, and then all the gradations down to the beginners that are actually growing this game. So that's, that's the biggest change I'm seeing. And you know what? I've written a couple articles on it. It's really difficult, and it's exciting. It's real exciting at the same time. But I, I think this is a, an exciting era in golf course design where, the complexity of the question that you just asked, the evolution from the 90s to what we're at now is just challenging. There's so many pieces of the puzzle, and then ultimately you've got you to achieve you know, greater sustainability uh, for them, them to decide uh, for the golf courses to survive and flourish, whether they're public, private, or resort, but then also 
you know, to never lose sight of growing the game, especially with women, juniors, and super seniors. As everybody who works in this business knows, Ray, it's become more challenging than ever to find people who want to work on a golf course and to fill entire labor crews in some parts of the country. Do you take that into consideration when you're doing a renovation? And do you think that 20 years from now, it's going to be tougher to maintain a golf course because there might just be fewer people working on it? Uh, another excellent question. And yeah, that, that is a huge, huge concern by superintendents in the industry nowadays. And regardless, irregardless of whether you're in the Northeast, Southeast, Northwest, uh, the labor issue has really, uh, really come to the forefront. And it, it not only impacts them, it has to impact us as golf course architects, uh, members of the ASGCA. And so, again, when you're looking at sustainability, you got to be very creative in on your on your feature development, what you're doing that you can save. You know, not necessarily that the the maintenance budget has to be reduced, but you're affording the superintendent some luxury with your redesign that he or she can spend less time in a certain area and donate it more. Let's say if a new trend in bunkers just you're not going for those steep slopes that catch the shadows for those photo ops. Instead, you, you may be doing a little bit less or you're, you're softening the slopes so that you eliminate all of that hand labor, the fly mowing, so you can go with traditional riding equipment. And again, you got to be sure, like I mentioned before, you don't cross that, that line of, of dumbing the design down. So you, you've got a lot of thoughts when you're doing that. But, yeah, it, it's something as an organization, architects, we have to, you know, keep improving. I think there's been a lot of good advancements in that area. And that's just going it, to, with the labor shortage, it just it compounds that issue, and it's going to impact maintenance budgets and then budgets that the club's appropriate. So we as a, as a group, architects have to be to the forefront in, in helping them, you know, that they can have a lot less hand labor in, in some of the areas around the golf course, but still keep it beautiful, keep it interesting, and then keep strategy, shot value, and playability alive. Let's talk about some of your recent projects. You've worked on courses of all levels, which is interesting, and we're going to just explore some of your recent work. Uh, the first one I want to ask you about is Mistwood Golf Club in suburban sh Chicago. What were some of the takeaways from that project, and what are some things that you need to do to separate a high-end public course like Mistwood is from the other high-end public courses in a very competitive golf market like Chicago? It is very competitive and a lot of great courses, a lot of great courses. So. I was the original designer of Mistwood, and uh, Mr. James McQuethy was one of the original stockholders, and, and he just loved Mistwood. He's a member at Shy Golf. He's a member of a couple of Mr. Mike Kaiser's courses, and he's a member in Arizona at a couple of clubs. Um, Mr. McQuethy is passionate about the game of golf and, um, and everything related to it. So he bought out all the stockholders. And then 
oh, this was about 2006 when we started doing master plans and that. He goes, Ray, I, I, I own the course outright now. I love Mistwood. And I took that as a great compliment because here's a guy who's a member of the Chicago Golf Club, one of the best courses in the Midwest. So we started talking about it. And to that point, Miss Wood had won a lot of uh, design awards by Golf Digest and uh, Golf Magazine. And so we're taking something that already has a pretty good reputation. But, you know, as technology march forward, people are hitting the ball farther. So you got to recalculate those uh, relationships of, you know, key to hazards. And, and then you look at improvements in turf net. So then he said, Ray, let's just look at shot value and strategy and everything and all the holes. So I said, oh, I'd love to. I'd love, you know, Pete Dye once said, coming back and dusting off an old design is one of the best things and favorite things any architect could do. So I was excited. I was pumped. And we sat down, and then he said, just what you said, Ray, sh- Chicago is a very competitive market. There's a lot of great golf courses. And I said, well, Mr. McQuethy, give me, give me your goals and objectives. And he said, well, uh, you know, the big three, like we, I'm, I've been saying over and over, you know, strategy, shot, value, play, ball, keep that at the forefront, improve that. But he said, I want, I want Mistwood something unique about it. I want something to stand out. So, you know, and I know by the correct definition, it is not a Lynx-type course, but, you know, golfers that don't know the true definition will say Mistwood has a Lynx-type flavor to it. So that that's fair enough. And um, so I said, you know, we talked about our favorite course. I said Valley Bunyan, uh, Royal County Down, Muirfield, the old course at St. Andrews, Prune are some of my favorite courses. Pit Lockery, a, a Gemini. He's like, wow, Rad played all those. And I said, Long Nidru. So we started going these obscure courses. And I said, Cruden Bay, Tom Doak, and Pete Dye told me to get up there. I love that. And he said, I love that too. So we started talking about it. And I said, Jim, you know what? In the Chicago area, there, there's no course that is really has a lot of the Rivet Wall stack side bunkers. And they, I think they would be unique here. And he goes, oh, my word, Ray, wow. He said, but that's a big gamble. He said, you know, public golfers might find those are too penal. And I got to ask my superintendent, uh, Ben Kellenhofer, Ben, you know, is up, you know, because they break down in seven years, you got to rebuild them. So I said, let's do some research. Let's talk to Ben. And they said, well, Ray, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to get some of the top media people in Chicago invite them for dinner, and you are going to sit down, and you're going to unveil your concepts. And so this was part of my concepts. That was one of the elements in there, and we, then we implemented these land and stone walls. But at the end of the dinner, Mr. McQuethy went around the table and said, what about Ray's Rosette Wall Bunkers? Good idea or bad idea? And I'm not going to name who was there, but there's about 12 of the titans in the yeah, Chicago Yeah, us market. media people can be rough. one guy bad idea horrible idea this would not work this this is oh you couldn't have this terrible (laughs) so when they left mr mcclethy looked at me and he said well how do you think it went i was like how do you think it went it couldn't have gone any worse 
And he said, he goes, well, do you still want to do it? I said, absolutely. How about you? He goes, I love your spirit. He goes, yeah, I'm in for it. So the result, Mistwood, we were fortunate. We won Golf Magazine's Public Course Renovation of the Year, one of Golf Digest's or their best new courses of the year. Golf Inc. gave it two awards. Uh, Midwest Golfer gave it an award. And uh, the awards were there, but the public golfers loved it. Now, here's why. And this is what Mr. McQuetty and I suspected, that some don't have the good fortune of going across that big pond and seeing some of those courses that actually have some of these beautiful bunkers. And uh, Adam Lawrence, you know, who um, writes for several publications at Golf Course Architecture magazine, said, Ray, I think these are wonderful bunkers that you've done, and he wrote a nice article about them. And, you know, as time went on, Jim and I would get these emails, but, you know, those bunkers were just one part of the design, of the redesign, the renovation. And, again, I looked at, you know, redefining angles and options on the whole. I always tell people that if, if you want to reduce golf course architecture down to its simplest terms, so even the, a neophyte uh, that has little understanding of golf to understand, golf architecture reduced down is, is McKenzie and Tilling S. McDonald always said, it's angles and options and making it different. So we really tried. I looked at the T locations and my angles and the hazard placements and made the fairways wide enough that um, the average golfer would still enjoy it. So Mistwood has gained huge success. But here was one of McQuethy's, and this is a tough, tough goal and objective when an owner puts this on an architect. He said, Ray, when it's done, I want to expand my draw radius about an hour. And I was like, man, I'll try. But, you know, there's no promises on that. Well, Mistwood now draws not only from an hour out, but we get a fair amount of golfers from Wisconsin, Indiana, Iowa, and Michigan. So that really made Mr. McQuethy and I proud that that succeeded. And here I'm going to read you. I just got a half hour ago from a Raider, a Golf Week Raider. I'm not going to say his name. But one of his ending sentences, he goes, Ray, I had, had the opportunity to talk to Mr. Webby. I just want to let you know that the golf needs more Mistwoods, courses that appeal to the better golfer, the average, and the beginner. Not easy to achieve, job well done. So, you know, when you get emails like that, and this guy just played it in September, and he was a, a Raider from another state that came out. So, yeah, I'm very proud of it. It was a big gamble uh, as one of the design elements elements putting in the Rivet Wall bunkers, but um, it paid off. A lot of people watched the British Open, and, you know, at the time Chicago didn't have a lot of those type of bunkers. You're seeing more and more courses starting to add a couple here, a couple there, but, you know, that's all right. Um, I, I, I don't have one particular bunker style, so... It's not like I try to interject those into all my designs, but I feel in, in this industry right now, golf course architects, we, we have a, a, a stern challenge. We have to uh, design uniqueness into 
into the renovations, uh, again, without crossing a line and going to bells and whistles. But um, this was a bold gamble, but it paid off, and I'm glad we did it. So I guess the three big lessons are don't believe everything people in the media tell you. Don't no, assume everyone plays golf overseas. And make sure that if you're going to do revetted bunkers, make sure you got buy-in from the superintendent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ben, ben Kellenhoff has said, I, I love these bunkers. I'm, I'm willing to take on, you know, that they have to be rebuilt after seven, eight years. And um, um, hopefully that's a little bit longer. That's holding up really, really good now. Here, here, this last story about Missoula. This was great. One of the big TV media celebs, I won't mention his name, comes out. And he's a great golfer in the Chicago area, and everybody knows it. And, you know, he's taking film with Mr. McCluck and I around the course for an evening uh, broadcast. And on one hole, one of my tallest stacks out wall, he puts it about six inches from the wall. He said, Ray, what if I hit it here? How, how do you get out? And this, you know, the wall in that particular bunker is my tallest one. It's about seven feet. So it's a monster. And I said, you know, it's kind of like the hell bunker at St. Andrews and that. But I said, you know, obviously you got to open your blade. And so he goes to the cameras, roll them, and Mr. McQuack and I are just sweating bullets. He opens up his club, takes a full swing, and then he jams his club into the wall. The ball pops up straight in the air. And thank goodness the pin was in the front quadrant of the, bunk, of the uh, green, and he hits it about three inches from the hole. And he looks at us, and he goes, I love this bunker. <laughs> <laughs> if, if he would have plugged it in the wall, it would have been a different response. So let's move to a bordering state. Tell us a little about Island Hills Golf Club in Michigan. There's a story involving your work there that, that in 17 holes, and you had to find an 18th. And there's also 5, 7, and 12-hole options there. Tell us a little about Island Hills and what makes it unique. Yeah, Island Hills is located in uh, southwest Michigan. It's in the beautiful Amish countryside, rolling hills, big lakes. Uh, it's just, it's beautiful. The only thing about that area of Michigan, there's not a lot of population, so you got to attract golfers. Well, um, I got a call from Bob Grafune, the owner, and said, hey, I just bought Island Hills, and the previous owner, uh, I had a little glitch with the, the closing. He only sold me 17 holes. And I'm like, what? And he goes, I, I said, which hole did you eliminate? And he said, you know, uh, it's Island Hills, if you look at Google Earth and you look at their website, uh, the original design had um, is on a 1,000-acre lake, but there were three holes, three-and-a-half holes that actually play out to a 40-acre island in the lake. And he said one of the holes on the island, you know, drops down about 70 feet in elevation to a peninsula on the island. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And he said, well, I know it's a great hole, but I want you to create one equally as good as that. And I said, well, holes on water, you know, are, 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 they're not easy to replicate. So he said, well, no, you can't do it on the water. I don't own any land on extra land, so you've got to find it somewhere in the course. I'm like, Wow right out of the bat, major, major task. So him and I were walking around looking at areas on the course where there was actually some room, and I went into this old wood lot, and I found these old ruins. And um, 
I asked him the story, and he said, you know, the next time you come back, I'm going to get the town historian to come out. And this was a home site in the early 1900s that uh, it was actually it was uh, 1895 that the wife, this was the, the, you know, the story, the lure, that she would set the house on fire, the wood that was inside, so that it would burn down except the outside, you know, stone walls. And she was in love with the local fireman. So he would come on, put out the fire, and then finally, I guess, after three fires, she divorced her husband, the poor soul, and married this fireman. But the remains of this old building, all the crumbled corners were there. So I said, I want to make a stone ruins part three. I want to integrate these ruins into this new golf hole. So the owner, who's a very good golfer, said, wow, that's risky. And shots hit the wall, the ricochet. I was like, don't worry, I'll kind of have around the edges of the holes, and from the elevated tees, you'll shoot over it. So that's how we got our hole that was missing. Um, that that worked out real well. But then he said, you know, Ray, I, I really believe golf has to do a better job growing the game. I know, you know, the USGA is doing a, a nice effort right now in the PGA of America, but he said, I want to do my small part. So we talked about it, and, you know, I, 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 I'm not the first to do this. So it, it received so much uh, accolades in a number of different magazines and made it all the way over to Europe. So we said, okay, let's do the routing allowed a five-hole course to play from the clubhouse when the course wasn't busy. And then we went and I created a seven-hole east, a seven-hole west, and a tribute to Jack Nicholas with his, you know, 12 uh whole design at Muirfield, integrated into that championship design. We did that. And then later I created a three-hole course. And then we did the 18-hole mini course within the championship 18 that, that actually plays at 4,000 yards. And their their tee plates in the fairway uh, with the logo on it and, you know, the yardage so that the juniors feel fulfilled when they go out and see that they actually have a tee plate. And from the back tees, it plays 72. So there's a plethora of different ways that this, this course can be played. And it just, the story started going viral, and the ASGCA gave us, um, awarded my company the Design Excellence Award, uh, you know, for this design. And um, we, it was after um, we received a Design Excellence Award for Mistwood. So we were on a pretty good roll with that. And then Mr. Gafune just made it better. Um, the word got out to the Wall Street Journal, and I forget the gentleman's name came out and spent a half a day with us and played, you know, each of the short courses. Uh, that day we we closed the course so that he could he could actually experience it. He wrote a nice article, but Bob would allow uh, locals in the uh, county to come out, and he would allow them to come out about three times a month. And he always planned it, as a smart businessman would, that, you know, these were slow days of the week. They're traditionally on a, a Monday morning. And it just and it ended up getting a lot of families that got interested in golf. And then it gravitated from there. They'd start going to the range and getting lessons. So it really started to increase his rounds. So on year two, he had a 
30% increase in rounds that the ASGCA did a big story on. But here's the nice thing about, you know, economic sustainability. Uh, both Mistwood and Island Hills, through my renovation, we were able to s- decrease the maintenance budget by integrating more, you know, low-maintenance fescue areas in design, and we narrowed the fairways where we could without, you know, negatively impacting uh, shot failure strategy. But at both of those projects, the owners had the guts when everyone else was lowering green fees because, remember, the, re- the recession is still, you know, fresh then. They increased their green fees uh, 10 bucks a year, which was bold in the public, you know, uh, course industry in the Midwest. So since the renovation, they've increased green fees each year and still had enjoyed an increase in rounds. So, you know, when some courses say, you know, you got to be careful when you have an architect come in and you do this, you know, don't, you know, you can't just jump green fees. Well, that's got to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. And in these particular areas, the owners were able to do that because they, they increased their draw radius to the golf course. So, yeah, that was a neat project just for that. And then we went through every hole just like Mistwood and, um, you know, looked at different angles and options that I put into design. And, um, yeah, um, Bob Refune is one of my biggest supporters, a great reference for me. When you go to Island Hills, uh, Delta Airlines years ago did uh, an article about it also. You're going through fields and fields of cornfields. You're just going by cornfields after cornfield. And you're always, you know, when people go out there for the first time, like, it's one of those, when am I going to get there? When am I going to get there? But when you get there, you got this little treasure of a course on a thousand acre lake. And Mr. Grafune has, um, has built some overnight villas overlooking the lake. So, uh, golfers from Chicago that come in and Indianapolis, which is a, you know, a fair amount of travel, they stay the night and play the course twice. And then he did, you know, pool to make it more of a resort. But um, he's done well there. He's done, it, it's a big success story. In both of those projects, the major tribute, you know, should go to both owners. They were very progressive, and they allowed me to, you know, think outside the box. Now let's jump to a different part of the country and a different type of ownership. You've worked at Schenectady Municipal Golf Course in upstate New York. What has it been like working with a municipality? And as a golf course architect, how many different things go through your head when you're trying to create a product or enhance a product that's going to be used by a wide range of customers like the ones that use municipal golf courses? Yeah, first of all, you know, when you mentioned when you look at my company's portfolio, we're pretty much evenly split. We are certain percentages, historic private clubs, private clubs, upscale public, you know, middle-range public, startup public, and then municipal. And I have a real, real soft spot in my heart for municipal golf because I grew up playing municipal golf at Chandler Park and Palmer Park uh, in Detroit, Michigan, and actually got my golf lessons from the Detroit Free Press. So obviously it's near and dear to me. When I went out to Schenectady, I did some research 
after I was hired. And it, it was a long uh, battle getting the project because it's a well-known municipal golf course in New York, and a lot of the um, uh, New York and East Coast-based architects, there was a big group of us that went after this project, and we were fortunate enough to get it. But the city engineer, his name is Mr. Chris Wallen, he's a historian, and, and he's an avid golfer. This gentleman just loves golf. He eats it, lives it, sleeps it. And to start off the project, after he got it, he goes, Ray, I want to take you to meet uh, the professor, one of the professors at Union College. His father worked on this project, and the course opened in 1934, and it was it's documented. It's one of the first courses built after the Great Depression. And this gentleman has 150 photos. These poor souls, the mayor of Schenectady, uh, decided that, you know, the Great Depression was ending. Schenectady was never really that impacted because of the influence of electrical companies. Uh, Edison was there, had headquarters in two other electrical companies. So they had the ability, there was primitive scrapers and machinery. He said, no, I'm going to limit the amount of um, uh, machinery that's used to build this, and we'll just hire 380 laborers, guys, poor souls that have been out of work. So there's these pitches of these guys with pickaxes 30 degrees, 30 degrees below zero, chiseling out the herringbone drainage patterns. What would you do if you had 380 workers on a project? Today, how quickly could you get things done? Well, you know, when we did the course in Egypt, we did Porta Marina, that was a lot of labor because obviously the labor's cheap. We didn't have 350, but we had about 180, and that was, that was overwhelming to me. I can't imagine 380. But in this one photo I'll, I'll send you later, it shows about 40 guys working on this green complex that's frozen with the pickaxes, the wheelbarrows, and that. So that was incredible. But back to your question about municipal golf, that is, you know, that when you talk about growing the game and keeping things sustainable, these are men and women that, that frequent this, that are, you know, uh, lower, lower income, middle, middle lower income, middle class. This is the salt of the earth. I mean, the people that, you know, don't have the money to join a private country club and just, and they love their Muni golf course. So Schenectady Municipal has a nickname, Muni. And, and the travel radius is already pretty good. So the, the goals and objectives to start out, they said, Ray, we're going to have you sit down with just going out in the course and talking um, to people. You're going to sit down in the clubhouse first and then go out and then randomly sample from group sites. Did you identify yourself as a golf course architect, or did you just talk to them uh, like you were another customer or person enjoying the golf course? Some of the time I would, I would tell them I was the golf course architect being out. Other times I'd just say, hi. you know, they didn't know if I was a worker or I was a clubhouse employee, and I had a couple of my associates out there with me. So part of the time we blended in, they didn't know who we were, and other times they knew we were the, the architect. But one of the things that when you're, you're dealing with municipal golf, and, again, this is going back to what I said before. There's a stereotype that, you know, don't, don't make it too difficult or don't try to be overly concerned with the strategy. You know, 
and it, it's wrong. There's a stereotype out there. Just get masses through these courses so they can keep, you know, producing money. And, you know, that's fine. You don't ever want to make any design too difficult. You have to think about all the gradations of golfing ability. But at this group, the public golfers that were there in the city management and their employees, great superintendent out there, Mike Sesney, uh, just a great East Coast art, uh, uh, superintendent. But they all had input, Ray. We, we want to breathe more life in this with the strategy and shot value. We love all of your examples and how we can enhance our angles and add some tees that we can play it from a different direction that's never been played before. We can lengthen certain holes. And on certain holes, I even shortened a couple holes to get more variety. So they really embrace that. And then, you know, one of your questions, you know, how courses evolved, you, you mentioned earlier from the 90s. Well, I guess this would still be applicable to a course in, you know, the 30s. We, we looked at implementing a state-of-the-art irrigation system with Brian Vicenze. Yeah, and I'll put a plug in here. He's one of our regular columnists at, at GCI. Oh, yeah, he is great. Brian is he's one of the best in his industry to, you know, put down water precisely and actually save the amount of water you're putting down. And then Mike and I, superintendent-architect relationship, we talked about new cultivars uh, that we can use on the golf course to make, you know, less uh, fertility requirements, less pesticide usage. We went through that. And then we went through naturalizing these areas to let you know the little blue stem that is indigenous to the area kind of take over and some of the outer players instead of mowing them you know they were mowing probably about 40 acres outside of the 18 holes proper and there was no need for it and it just you know mike was in green with me he was happy you know that we could do that and achieve and some of the uh, public golfers you know not that they would hit the ball so far right or left that they would be in these areas. But, you know, they would say, Ray, is this really a look that we want to instill here? And after it was done, and I would show them, you know, using technology, Photoshop before and after images, and they were like, oh, this is beautiful. And then we opened up some long views um, that were prevalent and really talked about in the 50s and 60s when the course was in its heyday. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're done with phase one. We've got a couple more phases to do, and everyone raves about it. And the mayor has been so supportive of the city council. Uh, Chris Wallen, um, the city engineer, just is so passionate about the project. We've got one of the most talented superintendents on the East Coast, Mike Sesney. And, uh, yeah, you've got you, you to think of it a little bit of a different way, but... But not really. You know, you still have to keep strategy, shot value, and playability in the forefront. And, you know, don't get locked down in those muni stereotypes of, you know, that a design has to be plain vanilla and that. And, you know, what What really, what I always trumped and tooted right out of the bat in terms of Beth Page Black and Torrey Pines, two great municipal golf courses that, you know, are in a class all by themselves, but I said, you know, Muni Golf doesn't have to be boring. Thank goodness everyone agreed right out of the shoot, so that wasn't a battle that I had to fight. 
right now we're involved with a handful of private clubs, a couple very, very upscale. Um, one's a golf resort, two are public, but we have different stages, early stages. We have five, five Muni designs on the table in um, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Connecticut, New York, and uh, and then uh, another one in Connecticut. That's great to hear that municipalities are thinking about investing in their golf facilities. Now, we got one more course story to tell, and we're going to go back to Chicago for this one. Tell our listeners about Flossmoor Country Club. It's got an extensive history, and what has it been like working with a private club that's been around for more than a century? Oh, wow. That, that one was a dream. That one was a dream. Uh, you know, when I interviewed with that, I, I really thought I wasn't going to get the project. I had a very good interview, but I won't mention the name out of respect for them, but they were, they were looking at two of the bigs in my industry. And, you know, when you look at the number of U.S. Open PGA courses each had designed, you know, I mean, they're top of the list in terms of name recognition. But I kept persisting and, you know, going back to them with historical research and digging up stuff, going, uh, working with the club historian before I was even hired. He found it really endearing that I was just interested in the project. And I worked with the Chicago Tribune and, you know, looking up old archives. And Mr. Moore is a, a historian in the Chicago where he wasn't a member of the club, but I called him and I did so much research on the club that that really struck a chord with them. And I did just a couple examples that if I was hired, this is how I would treat this. And it it hit a chord, and lo and behold, I got the job, and I, I was thrilled. I mean, my whole office, we were a buzz for about a week. Um, but then the pressure really dawned on us that, oh, my goodness, this is a pre 1900 design and um, looking at that it's like getting uh, equivalent to getting a, a new course design right on the Atlantic the Pacific Ocean and renovation is a huge honor so we, we looked at it and we, we just what, what I do uh, different from some others is I like to do an historical analysis on, on holes that haven't changed position so I, I gave them these illustrations of Mr. Tweedy, Herbert Tweedy's design development from his original drawings in 1898 and 1899, and then um, some sketches that were found from the early 1900s. And then I would do aerial, the first aerial uh, photos in the Chicago were about 1930-ish, I think it was 1932. And there was a drainage plan that was done in 1925. And then about every 10 years, you know, aerials were shot so i showed um the membership in these committees how these these holes evolved and they were like wow ray this is this is fascinating and i love it too and it, you get cut and it, it really it gave me the foundation for what i said would be restored or renovated and that's a tricky business and that's a whole another talk you know you can have with architects and when do you restore and when do you renovate and so it was we we struck a nice balance and we had historical significance that's still related to shot value strategy and, and playability 
when that happened and when, you know, forms that Hilly, um, that Tweedy had incorporated in the Zion, when they were, you know, um, I'll say calibrated to today's distances. And I still consider that, you know, a combination of renovation, restoration, when that happened. But every project, you know, I always look at this unique thing. So I go to this meeting, and I said, folks, H.W. Tweedy was a genius in terms of routing. He died way too early. He was on his way to fame. He would have been much more famous than he is today. His designs that he did were great, but his routings were especially genius, I thought. He was up there with McDonald, Mackenzie, Tilling, yes, and that. His green designs were very strong, and some would argue that he's not, you know, Ross-like or, or McDonald, but he was still very, very good in his green design. But what I looked at, I thought his bunker designs were weak from his sketches. And when you look at what some of the other architects were doing in that era, there were many that were much better than him. So I had a radical idea. I, I, I came to the um, long-range planning committee, the Greens Committee, and the Board of Governors, and I said I want to do, um, I want to do these George Thomas bunkers here, and they were like, "What? Are you kidding?" And I, I showed them Photoshop illustrations of how they would look, and I explained. I said, "Mr. Tweedy would probably agree with this. This was one of the weak. He was so strong in his green design." and his routings and his angles on his strategy options, this would really, I, I think he'd really like this. And I kept showing him more and more, you know, artist renderings and Photoshop illustrations. So finally at one meeting, there was about four meetings just on bunkers, and the last meeting drew about 200 people. And I was just, I was nervous going into this. I thought, oh, this is my Waterloo right here. And one of the older members, I forget this gentleman's name, and sadly enough, he has passed since then. He was the um, the E.F. Hutton of the club. He wasn't a club historian, but he got up, and at the time, he was 85 years old, still golfing, you know, three days a week. He got up there and he said, I think this is a radical idea, but I think it's, it's a brilliant idea, and I think we should do this. And then Bob Lively, the great superintendent at the time, he's since then, he's gone to another course, he goes, Ray, I love these bunkers. And I said, all these intricate edges, this is one that maybe would work against sustainability. On the other end, it would create a little more maintenance of hand-raking those. But then one by one, it, the membership said, we have to do this. This is unique. It's going to give us a unique look, and it's, gonna, it's the final art strokes with the, uh, you know, with the paintbrush that's going to complete Tweedy's painting. So we did it. And the membership loved it. And Bob Lively and his crew, they were all for this. And, you know, the little extra maintenance this would uh, cost. And they weren't, they weren't huge bunkers, so it's not like by eliminating a trap rake this was causing. They hand-raked all their bunkers anyway. So Bob said it was about, and his bunker maintenance, it was about, 8% more a year, which wasn't a lot, just in bunker maintenance. And so, you know, we went on, and then it went out, and then that year there was a lot of private clubs that were up for awards, but Golf Magazine uh, put Flossmore to the top of the list and gave it their um, best private club renovation 
in uh, 2010. So everyone was really thrilled, and um, members still love it. I still go out there twice a year and help them with tweaking. But that, that was a lot of pressure. That would be pressure on any architect. When you have the good fortune of getting being involved with a course that's pre-1900, I mean, that just, any architect gives you goosebumps. I mean, that was a great honor and a privilege. But uh, it, it was a lot of tension early on. It was a lot of expectations. And then, uh, you know, there was some members, there was a couple members in the club, said, wow, you know, we really took a gamble by hiring Ray Hearn. He's, he's known. He's known in the Midwest. He's done stuff out east. But, you know, he's not a, this architect or this architect that was passed up. So, uh, yeah, it was a good one. We, we, we absolutely loved it. And as a result, now we're working with the um, Midlothian Country Club in Chicago, which is also a pre-1900 uh, course. Well, Ray, this was a blast to get a chance to speak with you. Your passion and enthusiasm is infectious. And I think I want to go out now and just call the biggest name golf writer or sports writer that I can find and pick his brain like you did with Robert Trent Jones Sr. years ago. But we really appreciate you taking the time. And I guess I have to ask you one more question. Whenever you decide to dial it back in your career, are you going to go all retro and end your career working as an assistant superintendent? Um, you know, I know that, you know, uh, McKenzie, kind of because things were slowing down, he was actually, you know, in management and a little bit on the, um, on the um, maintenance side of Paso Tiempo. But, um, no, I, I love what I do. I, I, I don't see myself. I, I still have a great love and appreciation for that. But... Um, you know, this is a, this is a good day job. As, like I said to many, you know, you wake up and you start thinking about, you know, strategy and feature development, golf holes, studying great golf holes around the world on trips, you know, redesigning these classics, uh, working with great municipal courses. Uh, what what a blast! Uh, as my brothers and sisters say, I come from a large Catholic family, a lot of children. They it's Ray. You, you're having way too much fun. You shouldn't get paid for what you do. No, no. In, in all seriousness, I was just joking about the assistant superintendent thing. But what, what a cool story to start this podcast, and what a great way to end it. Thank you again so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. You have a great, great show, and I, uh, I really enjoy it.